Hey everyone, this is Michael. In this episode, I spoke with Eduardo Brindicio, a professor of anthropology at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. I met Eduardo when I was a PhD student at Indiana University, specifically at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, or SPIA. And during our conversation, I learned that Eduardo also graduated from SPIA before becoming a professor at IU. Eduardo has studied land use change across multiple scales in the Brazilian Amazon for several decades, and we talked about his perspective on the broad patterns of change there. We also discussed Eduardo's role as the editor of two major environmental journals, Current Opinion and Environmental Sustainability and Global Environmental Change. Finally, I asked Eduardo to talk about his identity as an interdisciplinary scholar rooted in the discipline of anthropology. At the end of our conversation, Eduardo offered what I think is very valuable advice about the importance of seeing what people are doing on the ground as not just a source of data, but as a source of inspiration. This is the In Common Podcast. I mean, I think I saw you last, I saw you last year in Oaxaca, Mexico, I think, just very briefly. Yeah at the environmental governance conference. Yeah. Um, how has 2020 treated you? Uh, I feel so privileged, you know, to be able to work at home, you know, to have a nice place to work and to be healthy. I hadn't realized this. So you're, you're a professor of anthropology at Indiana University in Bloomington, which is where I met you as a graduate student. But am, do I have it right that you also got your PhD at Indiana? Yeah. in the 90s in anthropology no it was a combination of that, okay. that's what it was an interesting thing i mean my trajectory was never linear i did a phd with a concentration in anthropology particularly environmental anthropology but i entered through the phd through the spia environmental science program okay so you were so spia is school of public and environmental affairs yeah which is where I got my PhD as well. Okay. Yeah, that, what that program allowed me to do was to um, develop a curriculum uh, that was centered around uh, environmental anthropology. Um, and then, yeah, basically take that as my main concentration. And so I paired the, the, the environmental science curriculum with the anthropology curriculum and developed as my doctoral degree. Okay. So um, still thinking about your doctoral degree, I mean, one of the things I notice about you, Eduardo, is you really represent well two of the main themes that have come out for us in the podcast. With one is interdisciplinarity and the other one is transdisciplinarity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to talk about how you, wor- how you see your work reflecting those themes throughout this interview. But starting with your dissertation, what did you do for your dissertation? and did you, um, were you already thinking about kind of combining remote sensing with field work, the things that we see have typified your work since? Um, were you on the ground working with local communities? Um, how did that start for you? Yeah, thank you for the question. The title of my dissertation is Human and Landscape Ecology of Caboclo Populations in the Amazon Estuary and Delta which I think reflected very well the kind of approach that I did, which was taking, uh, at the time, which would be a cultural ecology perspective to look at uh, 
from the perspective of household and families in terms of their interactions with the environment in the larger uh, region uh, and look at how individual decision making and how people react to the pressures and opportunities that they have on the ground translate into emergent patterns into the landscape. So my dissertation zoom in that relationship between household decision making about land use and migration and the expression of those decisions onto the landscape. And so I came very early, you know, to to have to bring an anthropology perspective because my interest is actually working with the families making decisions under real constraints you know and thinking about their future and their opportunities so that is the level of analysis that i like to work is really in touch with you know the way people are living their daily lives and making decisions in relation to the changes that are taking place around them the remote sensing part I brought it from my earlier work. Now that work started earlier and there's a larger history there because I was grew up, growing up during the time of the military dictatorship and I was part of that generation that was coming, uh, you know, to confront and to kind of look forward beyond the military dictatorship. So I was very involved with the environmental movement of the environmental movement in Brazil. And so that's an important part of the story. Uh, mm -hmm. When I was looking for this final project in my undergraduate degree, uh, there was an opening in the transition from the military to a civil government, an opening in terms of opening the National Institute for Space Research to the civil society. And as, as I was very involved with the environmental movement, uh, the project that I became interested on in working was to understand how the construction of a major highway connecting Sao Paulo and Rio through the coast was affecting fishing, you know, fishing communities uh, in that area. So I was doing an agricultural degree, but I took my work to be more along the lines of land use change in mm -hmm. rural sociology, uh, if you will, trying to understand the impact of large-scale infrastructural change on local communities. I entered, I had the opportunity to enter into the National Institute for Space Research and start to learn remote sensing, apply to the examination of this road construction and all the, you know, the, the land tenure conflicts that emerged out of that to examine how that has affected the land use of a very small fishing communities. So my first project was actually to bring an application of remote sensing to understand that impact at a very local scale. Uh, from there, I start working and I was a founding member of the SOS Atlantic Forest Foundation, which is probably the, the largest uh, environmental NGO in Brazil. And I start coordinating a project to map the history of transformation of the Atlantic forest in Brazil as a whole, which are 16 states. So okay. I brought my experience on doing remote sensing at a very local level to apply it to a very large national scale to look at the transformation of the Atlantic forest. So from the beginning, 
I was looking on the ground on how things were changing, but also having a large scale perspective, combining that kind of field work and remote sensing combination. Okay. Um, Okay. Then I start working in the Amazon and, you know, end up bringing those things together uh, in a more coherent way, uh, I'll say, to look at those two levels of analysis and their interactions. You know, how large-scale processes are influencing people on the ground mm-hmm. and how their decisions are also influencing the transformation of the larger landscape. Okay. So... You mentioned that you're interested in, I mean, so I kind of have in mind, in my mind now, a picture kind of, as you just described, where you've got, you know, one, it's, I'm, look, I'm thinking about this as a box and error diagram, where you're thinking about the constraints and changes that local communities and households are facing, that feeds into the decisions that they make, and then that feeds back to um, lo- like larger landscape level patterns that you're looking at. Yeah. That's kind of the, the research program here. Okay. And so you mentioned, Eduardo, earlier on um, that these communities were experiencing changes. And I was um, hoping you could talk to us a bit about what changes you've seen. You mentioned new infrastructure, a big new highway. And I'm aware enough of this literature that um, new infrastructure is seen as one of the main drivers of change in you know, tropical forest ecosystems. Could you talk a bit about that specific change and whether there are other changes that you've seen um, in these systems in the Amazon during, you know, you've been working there now for several decades, I understand. Yeah, over 30 years. 30 years, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Because I'll mention this, I was, of course, um, Googling you and looking up your background online to prepare for this, and I saw that it looked like in 2008 you wrote, a, you have a book that came out, Amazonian Goboklo in the Asei Palm, Forest Farmers in a Global Market. Yeah. And so that's kind of layering on to my previous question about these changes that local folks are seeing because something else I, I am aware that you've looked at is um, commodity markets and how those are affecting local communities. I have the broad impression that um, communities around the world are being increasingly integrated into like well-articulated commodity markets. And then that's, that's a, a, a disturbance to a lot of those communities. Um, I've not seen any kind of meta-analysis comparing communal responses and experiences with this. So kind of wherever you want to go with this, Eduardo, you know, we're talking about different disturbances that these local communities are facing, infrastructure, commodity markets, um, are there broad patterns that you, you think you've seen in the communities you've worked with with respect to those types of disturbances? So when I explained that project, you know, I was sort of giving a practical example of a type of a problem that I'm interested on in understanding that relationship between larger national transformations in that case and, and local communities, rural communities uh, in that case. So that fits into a, my larger interest uh, that has evolved over time as well, uh, but at the time was, you know, very much central uh, to my own uh, uh, goals and, and enthusiasm and idea, which is to understand the place and the transformation of rural populations in Brazil. Okay. Okay, so that, that was an important goal. My motivation is, you know, understanding that and, and understanding how the national transformations that were so fast um, were affecting them. So infrastructure was one expression 
uh, that larger set of, of forces affecting rural populations in Brazil, like roads. Uh, and they're a very obvious expression because it put is, puts in motion a whole set of other transformations. But more broadly, you know, I'm interested on uh, infrastructure, new markets, um, the narratives about rural populations and how they are you know, talked about and how they are included in a vision of national development and national futures. How the local populations are included in those discourses or not. Yes. In okay. particular, small scale farming populations. Okay. And their position in the larger vision, narrative, and process that is shaping a, a, a country, in this case, in very fast transformation. And with a, you know, a kind of development narrative that very much excluded the contribution of small scale farmers, you know, local communities more broadly in their contribution in agriculture, in resource management, in my main interest is looking into what is their place uh, and how uh, we see and include or not include small scale farmers and, and rural communities in general in the vision of national development uh, in change. And are there success stories for them that you've seen where they've been able to ma maybe maintain what they had been doing? It's hard to answer this way because it, it's sort of, uh, you know, there are many trajectories, many processes taking yes. place uh, in, as part of this transitions and transformations that we've been seeing, you know, particularly in the past 70 years that I would say are very regionally and historically differentiated. You know, because it's not a process that is happening at the same time, uh, it's a process that is moving across a country like Brazil. Um, so uh, the impact over time has been very different in different populations. Um, and the, the ability of local communities to respond to these kinds of development forces or market forces and, and, and everything else has changed significantly over time. Um, first, when you look at between the, the 60s and the 80s, the time when I was sort of becoming aware of those issues, these were a period of dictatorship, a period of top-down, centralized, you know, uh, highly uh, ideal men that uh, had no place for discussion, you know, so you're be implementing a, a, a view of transitioning Brazil from a country that was primarily rural uh, to a country that became primarily urban uh, into a vision of economy that had place for some and no place for others. Um, over time, you see the rise of social movements. You see you know, the rise of political organization. You also see a change in narrative uh, on the values of local production, of local knowledge on the rights of indigenous and local populations, you know, and you have also the, you know, the civil society become organized and participating in this process. So it has been a mixed process, I would say, that is still happening. Yeah. Because that it's part of a moving frontier that hasn't stopped. Sure. Right? And that engulfs people on the way. Um, yeah. I mean, it sounds like there's some, important and common lessons here. I mean, I think in the popular imagination of a lot of the folks 
in the United States, we hear about the Amazon as a singular noun, and we hear about the things happening in the Amazon. We imagine trees getting cut down, right? We, we, we remember the things maybe we saw on like a PBS documentary or something. And I think one of the things that we forget is what I'm hearing from you is that really there are many Amazons and there are many different places with many different trajectories and which makes it hard to talk about. I mean, this is always the challenge. We want to, we want to kind of, in James Scott terms, talk, get a synoptic view of what's happening in a large area. Um, but our imagination is really woefully inadequate to capture all the different things that are happening for all the different people in all the different places. Yeah. And that has been a, a huge motivation of my work in the sense that the Amazon affords uh, and calls for uh, the, the needs to have a view of regional transformation because the, the, the region has features that makes it function as an organic entity in one way, both biophysically, the interconnection uh, of the region's you know, watershed, the region's ecosystems, the movement of species, the pattern of water circulation and climate. You know, there's a number of conditions that sort of uh, makes the Amazon uh, a whole, if you will, yep. functioning uh, as a whole, including on our imaginaries and how we think about the region as one and, and so forth. At the same time, we know that creates an illusion, you know, of homogeneity, of, of um, you know, singularity for a region that is almost the size of the continental United States, right. in which you have, you know, both uh, uh, a depth of history that goes many thousands of years of very active, um, also large-scale occupation and management by indigenous population, uh, as well as a history that continues to transform today, you know, the people arriving today. So uh, there's a many historical deaths in the in a region like the Amazon, um, and an incredible amount of local realities, as, as we say, you know, mm -hmm. that in themselves are so distinct that you can, you know, even not imagine that they're part of the same region. So both things are interconnected uh i think that's the the challenge that we have um is to be able to understand the interactions between those two processes uh, you know processes that are happening from the bottom up processes that are happening at a large scale um the way i interpret some of this in in my own work is to look at the region from a complex systems perspective um looking at it uh as you know, look at the transformation of the Amazon uh, as a process of interactions between large-scale biophysical, political, and market forces and differential responses at different parts of the region, you know, that creates the kinds of outcomes that have been progressively making the region more complex and more mosaic. I'd like to hear more about your continued involvement in Brazil. Like, how, is, how has that evolved? You've been living in the United States. You've been a professor at Indiana University for a long time. Um, I know as, you know as we all get older and careers advance, it can be harder to stay connected to our field sites, et cetera. How has that evolved for you? And I wanted to tie it back to this concept I mentioned earlier of transdisciplinarity, of you know, doing science 
both for science sake, but also having this other value stream of producing local knowledge, engaging with local actors. How has that process evolved for you? Um, how have you engaged with um, what's going on in Brazil, complementing the science that you're doing? I would say it's stronger today than it used to be, uh, in the sense that you know, I've been, you know, dedicating time from the beginning, you know, to maintain very close relationships, to recruit and work with Brazilian students, to partner with Brazilian colleagues, uh, to work on the ground every year, you know, so what I think a, a very important part of this is to have a field-based research program where we understand these changes on the ground and to have very close partnerships. I have made this part of my goals in terms of my career, and I have to credit this, you know, also to Emilio Moran, uh, who was my uh, mentor uh, and my advisor here, who allowed me to come here, but also because his, um, uh, you know, his own goal was to train a generation of Brazilians, which he beautifully did uh, and had a huge impact, I think. Uh, in Brazil and elsewhere, and I think that is a cause that I, you know, try to honor as well in terms of maintaining that flow of collaboration between Indiana and Brazilian institutions, um, working with colleagues on the ground, recruiting Brazilian students, taking American students to work in Brazil. Um, so I, I remain very, very closed, and I make my research program, you know, as one that I would say is as strong in Brazil as it tends to be um, here. Okay. What kind of anthropologist do you see yourself as being? And have you had challenges in your career in communicating who you are to other people, given this focus that you have on interdisciplinarity, which can make it harder to kind of put yourself in uh, a certain box for people and make the right signals to other people? How is that? Um, factored into your career? That's a great question. Uh, I think it's a really important question because a lot of people are grappling with that, you know, and facing those issues of professional identity and professional labels and confronting a long history of this, you know, disciplinary stereotypes and territories and, and so forth. So it's a question that I always appreciate to, to share my experience. Um, it is sometimes difficult. I don't think I ever had a problem with it because very early on, um, I, uh, I decided to, uh, you know, to, 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 to prioritize a point of view that most closely related to my interests, which is to work on the ground, to work directly with people, uh, and to understand their perspectives, uh, you know, to understand the other issues. So I took that level of analysis and that kind of concern as my center, you know, where I would center my attention and what, where I would develop uh, my expertise in order to collaborate with other sorts of problems. I never put boundaries into that, however, uh, in the sense that I you know, as from the beginning, what drives me are the questions that interest me. The point of departure from that questions 
are the lives of people on the ground and the people that I want to learn from to understand those questions. But I'll take any direction that I need, you know, to learn and to work with others to really grapple with the questions that we deal with, which do not see disciplinary boundaries. So that's the decision I took from the beginning. I say that's the area, that's the perspective I want to bring to inform my trajectory. And I invested on that in training myself, in learning and taking courses and creating my own conceptual connections between a discipline with a particular history and how I could leverage on that to connect to other areas of other ways of inquiring around particular problems. As part of that, and, and that's something that has been really central to me uh, and was a centerpiece of my doctoral studies, because I was grappling with the same questions at that time. Actually, I had the opportunity at that time, for instance, to transfer entirely to, to anthropology instead of doing a combination of anthropology and environmental science. And at the time, say, well, I am developing my expertise in this field uh, and, you know, sort of following the, the, the pathway that I was following, which is to form a curriculum, to form a committee, you know, to, to develop a, a critical mass uh, that allow me that disciplinary identity. I was doing that anyway. I was kind of, you know, taking the formal courses and working, you know, being advised by anthropologists and so forth. But required me to conceptualize that in a way that, you know, it could be grounded. And what I did at that time was to develop a kind of a three-dimensional, um, or that's not the best, best term, but to develop a, a conceptual framework on what do I mean by interdisciplinarity? And that conceptual framework, you know, guided everything that I did and still guides today on how I think about my courses, my, you know, and, and what I write and so forth. And that is, has a first component, which is, you know, to understand the, the co-evolution of the historical developments of the fields that you were working on. So as part of my own training, you know, I put a lot of emphasis into the genealogy, the historical genealogy of concepts and, and, and disciplinary um, teaching. So I have, I do that very, you know, consistently. I kind of, I study the history of a field. And that's what I did in anthropology. I dedicated myself to study that history in detail, to make sense of that history, to make a connection of that history and how it got to be today to look at the interface of different historical moments, different paradigms, different approaches with other fields within anthropology and the two fields in anthropology that I dedicated myself to study with environmental anthropology and economic anthropology, and then making a connection historically to the other developments around that same topic. What was happening in ecology? What was happening? in ethnobiology, what was happening, you know, in, I don't know, resource management areas. So I, I, that's what I do. I mean, I, I do a historical evolution of the field that I'm studying to really understand what I'm using, why I'm using, and, and so forth. The second part of that is understanding the methods and the nature of evidence that is involved with, from different fields and in what ways they complement each other. 
and you know, in what ways can you leverage and bring it together? Different forms of evidence that informs you about different levels, about you know the strengths of different kinds of evidence, the limitations of different kinds of evidence. So I don't see evidence, you know, as conflicting. I see evi the, the different evidence of different nature as conflicting. I see evidence of different nature providing different pieces of a, a problem. And the third point of it is in what ways, you know, I can understand uh, in these areas, I can understand, you know, the, the, the opportunities that you have by approaching the topic inductively and the opportunities that you have approaching the topic deductively, meaning in a simple way, you know, what do I learn from different strands of theories around these problems that gives me that perspective? So in my dissertation, in fact, I articulated these three uh, pillars of what I consider interdisciplinary thinking uh, from that perspective, a historical perspective, you know, a complementarity of evidence perspective, and uh, a, a kind of variations in theoretical perspectives to a topic. And that's an exercise that I do continuously. I organize my courses more or less around this approach. So that's, that's kind of the foundation in which I build what I think, you know, it's interdisciplinary. Today, uh, and actually I wrote an article about two years ago to the Social Science Research Council on interdisciplinarity. And I called the article um, interdisciplinarity as collaborative problem framing. And the reason I, uh, you know, I did and why I did that article was that, you know, I still think in the discussions about interdisciplinarity, are grounded in old conceptions about disciplines, which are not very useful, I think. And, and by that, I mean that we're still talking about disciplines and interdisciplinarity based on ideas of organizational domains of disciplines. The way disciplines are organized in institutions such as a university, not in terms of disciplines as um, areas or domains of knowledge production, which are very different from organizational domains of discipline. And a lot of the time when the interdisciplinary comes up or the, the term discipline comes up, we are mixing organizational structures that are random in many cases, or that are based on historical legacies that do not reflect what people within that field is producing in terms of knowledge. So I tend to make that division, and which means that I do not see interdisciplinarity as a combination of organizational domains of disciplines. I see as you know collaboration within a discipline or across disciplines, you know, that we bring different perspectives to a problem framing and different types of evidence to understand those problems. It may overlap with disciplines as organizational domains, um, but they may not. That does not, you know, disconsider the role of disciplines as domains of knowledge production. 
because we do bring, you know, and we do have to have enough depth in whatever field you do, uh, you know, to really contribute to advanced knowledge. So I think specialization is really important in that it really helps you to help to understand a advanced field, a advanced concept. Um, and your discipline, like my discipline in anthropology, allows me to bring that perspective of working on the ground, understand how people think, understand how people make a choice, privileging um, that level of that and working more ethnographically while giving up other levels that are no less. But I'll bring that perspective in much more detail to contribute to the larger picture. So I see huge amount of importance in disciplines as domains of knowledge production, but I think we still mix up that with disciplines as organizational domains. That was one of the, maybe the most thoughtful response to that kind of question I've, I've ever heard. That was terrific. I mean, I think part, a lot of what I'm hearing, I think, Eduardo, is, um, I mean, I think sometimes when one thinks about interdisciplinarity, one worries about being scattered intellectually and in terms of one's identity. And there's a relationship between those. Um, we don't want to be scattered intellectually because it's, it, um, doesn't sound very uh, efficient or effective. We don't want our identity to be scattered because we need a concrete identity yeah. socially. It's very important for any human, right? Yeah. And so I heard it at the beginning, and I feel like I heard it several times throughout, is that being inter interdisciplinary, um, it doesn't mean that you have to be scattered. You talked about being centered at the beginning, right? And I think that's really important, having a center for for the development of your own professional identity. And it sounded like part of your center came from a particular question, this interest in understanding human experience, you know, on the ground. And I think that's really important as, you know, if as a young scholar, as um, someone who's interested in combining perspectives, you, that can't sacrifice the, the idea of having a core or a center. Like there needs to be something that's persistent within your own identity as you reach out and branch out into these alternative spaces. I mean, it was reinforced, I think, when you mentioned the emphasis you've placed on taking a deeper dive into specific literatures. I mean, that, that needs to be part of being interdisciplinary as well. You can't, you, you still have to have some of that depth is, some, is, a, is something else I feel like I heard. Um, in the historical depth that you need to understand where you are and where you're taking, you know, the, the area of interest that you're right. Into. Yeah, I mean, because your identity comes from an awareness of we all want to understand where we come from intellectually. Yeah. And I think um, the final thing I feel like I heard re relates to this distinction that um, institutional analysts common, commonly make is between kind of formal rules and informal rules, formal group boundaries in the form of these organizational disciplines versus something that's maybe more informal, but just as meaningful, if not many times more meaningful, is who ends up actually working with who in an interdisciplinary project. And I think we all need to be aware of both of those things, both of those ways in which people organize themselves. Um, Summary, yeah. <laughs> I just, I was, you know, I, partly doing it for myself, I wanna make sure that I get the nuggets, because again, like your answer was just so terrific. 
Um, okay, Eduardo, I, I knew going into this interview, there's going to be more to ask you about than, than we're going to have time. I want to make sure that we um, talk about this other role that you have, because I know people are going to want to hear about it um, as an editor of uh, current, you know, so I, there's two journals I want to ask you about. One is current opinion in environmental sustainability. I think that's what it is. I always just call it COSIST. Yes. And, and so the other one is GEC, Global Environmental Change. I think they're both Elsevier journals. Yes. So I'd love to hear about how you got involved as the editor in, I think it was first COSIST, and then uh, in the GEC, I understand, is fairly recent. Yes. So how you got involved um, in that way, and what are your goals for those journals, and how those fit into your larger goals for science so these two journals i see as part of the evolution is spaces in which a community interested in integrating in addressing complex social environmental problems in linking levels of analysis and progressively bringing a whole you know new diversity of evidence and approaches and voices that are reflected in these two journals so basically you know it sort of uh, was very i was very comfortable you know when giving the opportunity uh, to join first current opinions because that's part of if you will my community as well you know that community working at the interface of our disciplinary strengths and expertise in understanding how that can contribute to the larger of sustainability so current opinions kind of um, intermediate space where biophysical scientists, critical social scientists, more traditional social scientists are interacting together to deal with problems that they all have limitations to deal with, with an important agenda around sustainability issues um, and bringing as diverse as possible voices to that. Global environmental change is exactly that. It reflects exactly this history of the last 30 years. And the journal is now celebrating 30 years. Wow. Uh, and it's a journal, if you will, of the human dimensions community. It is a community that continues to grow. Uh, so I want to keep, you know, help keep it, taking that those two journals in the direction of them becoming more inclusive, uh, becoming more relevant, you know, in really addressing problems that offer uh, tools uh, that are both provocative scientifically or intellectually, but also useful in policy discussions and so, you know, general discussions. Um, we want to continue to take global environmental change, you know, that way, but reflecting the new and emergent themes and also many new areas of research that have been coming on board since the journal was founded. You know, so uh, we see, for instance, uh, 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 you know, really interesting trends uh, in submissions, for instance. You have much more uh, people dealing with different sectors that, that, you know, were not perhaps as common before, like linking biogeochemical cycles and social processes 
or there's a, you know, a lot of interest on behavioral psychology, a lot of interest on in communication, framings, a lot of interest on in social movements, environmental justice, very important area. A whole line of indigenous scholarship that is emerging around those issues. Um, and, and, and so 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 forth. So I think we want to reflect that emerging scholarship, um, maintain a very rigorous journal, um, significant problem that we have in global change research and research more broadly is, is still the dominance of, of Global North uh, authors and actually very specific. <laughs> Uh, uh, Parts of the global north, yeah, yeah, of of authors of the global north. I think we need to diversify that uh, significantly, you know, and uh, and that means uh, uh, attracting scholars from all sorts of, of of corners of the world to submit their work, diversifying our editorial board in having international representation in having expertise representation in having gender representation uh, in the editorial board that helps us to make connections to create networks um, that will you know continue to expand the reach uh, and the contributors to the journal so. okay thanks Eduardo that's really great um yeah speaking of inclusiveness reminds me of um, and a growing interest that I've had, and we've talked with a couple of previous guests on this podcast, is the open access space. And I'm aware, right? So GEC is, is an Elsevier journal, so it's not open access. Um, is, uh, is open access something that interests you previous to this position? Um, how do you, what is your own opinion about um, the relationship between uh, access and inclusivity and other goals that we have in science? That's a really tough question. <laughs> yeah. That's a really, really tough question. Um, I think the term open access is not the best term to reflect the praxis <laughs> that we have mm -hmm. today published. Um, right. Because my concern with open access uh, is, you know, that it really restricts the pool of authors or the potential for restricting the pool of authors that you can draw from uh, based on their ability to pay. Uh, I don't think there's a model in place that replaces the problems that we have. Um, and I don't have an answer to it. You know, to yeah, there's not an easy... Problem. Yeah, I mean, it's, I ask it less to um, try to get a particular answer more just because I think it's one of the issues that we all want to be talking about. Yeah. Um, right, because we do have this, we have an access issue um at the front end who can actually publish and then an access issue at the back end like who can access the published literature i mean i think related to this is you know all of the largely invisible and unrewarded labor that academics incur by doing reviewing um which i think is a real issue i'm aware that you know the other the, the editors that i know um you know, during the COVID pandemic, they've said it's gotten kind of even harder to get reviewers because yeah. everyone's just strapped, et cetera. And it just feels like it's a suboptimal system where editors and associate editors, et cetera, have to, you know, go 15 names down the list to get the two people to review this paper. It, and I think that, you know, and that's one of the main lessons, I think, for governance scholars generally is that we need to make the invisible more visible. 
right? Going back to these disenfranchised communities that you're working with in Brazil, right? I mean, there are a lot of aspects of their identity and their lives sounds like they weren't in, they weren't, they were invisible to the modern development narrative. And so it's applying that same lesson to our own sector and saying, look, there's a lot of poorly visible work that academics are doing. How do we make that more visible and thus more value? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I really don't have an answer to that. I think there's a role um, for larger structural change. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, a discussion between funders, for instance, and publishers, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. taking place in some areas more than others. Um, I think there's a discussion about the, the social responsibility of publishers and, you know, commitments to make um, publications accessible in some forms with right. maybe some conditions, but it's a, it's a responsibility issue. And I think there's a role for the academic community uh, to raise a voice because we have been um, not organized uh, as an academic community, you know, to raise issues just like you raise uh, right. you know, the, the work provided by reviewers, by editors, by authors, in uh, in in the place that we have in you know in 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 promoting this work more broadly or the the the, the responsibility that we also have in promoting this work more broadly. So yeah, I agree with that, Eduardo. I mean, one of the the challenges I think there is in academia is that we are very decentralized in a lot of ways. I mean, each each academic is kind of their own island, sometimes and in some ways. And so I think that certainly more um collective action could help with some of these things so um okay i'm aware that uh i, I believe you have another commitment in in eight minutes um there was one last question and we can kind of do with it what we can um i'm aware that uh, a final set of affiliations that you have are with um i'm going to read these i wrote them down because they're both long names Mm-hmm. Um, with the inter- Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Yep. And you are on the Science Committee of the Future Earth Program and the International Geosphere Biosphere Program. Best. Those are, those are past roles. <laughs> both of those are past. Okay. Yeah. EPBS, the, the Intergovernmental Platform Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, the most, most meaningful and close to my heart and you know, very okay. important to me. And, it's a relationship that is started well before the program started. You know, I was a, a coordinated leading author for the Millennial Ecosystem Assessment. And uh, we're part of the social science group within that assessment. And it was a wonderful experience. EPBES emerges some years after that. And there's a whole process of very fascinating history until it's formally approved as an intergovernmental platform by governments in 2012 i was part of that whole process of you know the the plenaries and the thinking that that led to that uh one way or another uh, and continue to be involved but then i became really involved and was one of the most rewarding roles i ever had was as co-chair of the global assessment report on biodiversity and ecosystem service which was released after four years and approved by 132 governments last year in May 2019 at UNESCO. That report uh, had 
an impact that is still, you know, surprised us of the, the scale of impact that this report had and is still, still having. Um, it was a major effort, you know, with four years of work, um, all together, uh, three co-chairs uh, and all together a 450 authors, um, including the contributing authors, but, you know, uh, uh, more or less half of that that are nominated authors, mostly by government. And it became one of the most comprehensive look into the, you know, human nature relationship, uh, particularly during the last uh, 50 years. And I think it, it really represents that effort where you see the best of deep disciplinary expertise with deep interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary experts. I think that's the best example that I know because the questions were framed through a scoping process that involved government, scientists, and you know, a bunch of other stakeholders. Uh, we had common conceptual frameworks guiding the whole work of the assessment and a, a very strong socio-ecological framework a framework that also brought multiple knowledge systems and acknowledged multiple worldviews and forms of understanding human environmental relationship. I had the pleasure of, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, organizing and, 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 and leading the inclusion uh, of indigenous knowledge uh, and knowledge of local communities systematically through the whole assessment. And that has a, a huge impact. It still has a wow. very significant impact today. Uh, I think the findings of that assessment really took this discussion to a, a different level. Yeah, so the global assessment is, um, you know, has been a really a, a privilege and one of the most rewarding tasks, uh, particularly for the, the process itself. It was a fantastic collaboration across hundreds of scientists from multiple fields each one brought the best of their deep disciplinary expertise to a larger conversation. And, and then the impacts you know, that we see and are well documented, if you go to the site, there's a documentation of every kind of impact. It goes from very localized impacts, that, you know, actions that people do in their cities or groups do, to uh, government level, uh, policies uh, to large organizations that have reframed their, you know, their their narratives, their their priorities uh, going forward. So it was super rewarding, and and that yeah. sounds amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Um, all right, Eduardo, this has been really terrific. Are there any final thoughts that you wanted to share? Topics you make sure we want to just briefly cover before we sign off? Um. So many, <laughs> so many. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the, the things that have been the most rewarding this past few years is the one of the projects that I'm working on, it's called Agents, uh, which has many of, of our colleagues involved. It's a collaborative project uh, uh, focused on the Amazon, focused on local initiatives of transformation, the ones that tend to be most invisible and we have, you know, we're having a wonderful project, has been significantly affected by the pandemic. Uh, but it's one of those projects that we're paying attention to what people are doing on the ground, mostly invisible actors, 
you know, in areas of transitioning production system, in cooperative systems, in governance arrangements. And it has been fascinating and really empowering or encouraging to see how much is going on. I think under this, you know, overall narrative of crisis and failures, you know, and urgencies, I think a lot of the time we forget to look at what is happening, you know, the many positive changes that are happening, you know, the many ways in which people are contributing uh, and having a project that kind of centers attention into that uh, is really encouraging, it kind of bring us energy, you know, and, and bring us a different perspective to how we are facing the situation. So that has been great. And it, by the way, it involves a, a fantastic group of, of people. Many of, of you are very familiar, or you know very well, or that are very familiar to the audience here. Um, uh, Fabio de Castro, uh, Christian Anderson, Carl Salk, Maria Tengo, Seria Futema, and a wonderful group of postdocs and grad students and undergraduate students. So I just want to end on that note uh, on the sense that there's so many good things going on on the ground. You know, when you take them to pay attention to what people are doing, and I think we need more of that. I think we need, you know, uh, kind of narratives that empower and that, that recognize that people are not uh, waiting and people are not sort of paralyzed. You know, people are doing things. And I think we need to turn our eyes to that because that I think gives energy gives hope you know gives humility you know when you see how much people are investing in helping to change their reality and so forth so working this project among other projects um and with my colleagues here at iu you know you know the other project that has been great is the sustainable uh, food system science project a wonderful initiative here all these projects where we have a chance to look at what people are doing and the many positive things that people are doing, I think gives a different perspective, you know, particularly in this year, you know, when all we need some good news. Come to the fore. <laughs> yes. so, so I think we need that energy and that yeah. hope that comes from the, the, you know, valuing the actions that people are doing on the ground. Thanks for listening, everyone. The In Common podcast is now officially associated with the International Journal of the Commons and the International Association for the Study of the Commons. You can find more episodes and our new commenting series at your local podcasting app, as well as on our website, incommonpodcast.org. Also on the website, you'll find our blog and an option to give us a small donation through our Patreon account. If you want to support us here or by giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it. And feel free, as always, to reach out with any thoughts or suggestions that you have.